0: Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Aaron Sharoni. Erin is the Chief Product Officer, also CPO, of Foxo Technologies, Inc., a technology startup using the science of AI and epigenetics to reinvent the life insurance industry. Erin has more than 15 years of experience building products and brands in molecular health, media, and finance. Prior to joining Foxo, she served at Inside Tracker as a creative director. Erin's previous TV career as a TV host and journalist included roles on NBC Sports Network, CNBC, CBS Sports, and Showtime. She also sat on Ray Dalio's core management team at Bridgewater as a management associate. Her multidisciplinary approach to problem solving is driven by a lifelong commitment to the intersection of science and art, and she is passionate about disruptive technology that improves the human experience. Erin holds a master's degree in biology from Harvard and a bachelor's degree with honors in studio art from Wesleyan University. She is currently a master bioethics degree candidate at Harvard Medical School. On top of all the other things she's doing, I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Erin Sharoni. Hi, Erin. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. It was so awesome. Before we start, I just have to say, like, learning about your background was so interesting and How many different things you've studied and the different, you know, windy path your career has taken. I'm so excited to
1: dive in. It's gonna be a great show. I think it's gonna be awesome. I'm excited that you're excited, Erica.
0: (laughs) I am. I will say a lot of people, it really varies. Like some people, they kind of just stay in one industry and kind of explore that. And some people really all over the map and to see how you've brought it all together now, obviously by reading your background. Really cool. So Before we dive in, we do like to start the show with a bit of like a fun, light question. What is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be like a conversation you had. It could be like a stat you learned in an article, maybe a place you want to
1: visit. Like it could be anything, but something
0: new from this past week.
1: I don't know. I'm always learning lots of stuff because of the industry I'm in, right? (laughs) Or getting lots of different news alerts.
0: We're also getting your master's degree. So maybe something you learned in your program.
1: Cause you're getting your master's degree. Sure. Yeah. I do that part-time. Thankfully we're on break right now, which is great because I have obviously my full-time job. The two things intersect and complement each other very nicely, but it's nice to have a little bit of a break. So actually I had this awesome Uber driver the other night and this was totally random. He like kept me in the car chatting and he picked me up from this really cool place. I live in Miami beach. I'm from New York city, but I live in Miami beach now. I picked him from a super cool bar called Broken Shaker, which I recommend anyone who comes to Miami, you should check it out. It's great. And he said, oh, how was the shaker tonight? I said, it was awesome. He's like, let me tell you about some other places that you might not have heard of. And so he's like rattling off this list of local stuff that I, as a resident of Miami Beach for what, seven, eight years now, didn't even know about. And he told me there was this new like plant-based Indian restaurant and they have bachata dancing at night. It's like totally random. So yeah, anyway, so that's something new that I learned about my neighborhood that I didn't know. I was like, what are you talking about? That was cool. So I'm gonna check that out. Okay, how about a
0: startup that like gets Uber drivers and Lyft drivers to like give their recommendations? Because I feel like they actually know what's going on. They know where the hot spots are. Like they're picking people up. They know who the cool passengers are.
1: Yeah. And if they're, if they're chatting and they have conversations with people or they're listening right, to people in the backseat and they can go, oh, do can't go to that place because I just heard that that place was a disaster or everyone seems to be in a good mood when they leave such and such place. So yeah, that was cool. I gave him a good tip, obviously, because he gave me extra recommendations.
0: Yeah. You're like, wait, this was just like $25 to go on a drive. This, this list is worth a lot more. That's so funny. I feel like we have a broken shaker in LA. Are you in LA? Yeah, I'm in LA and you know, the name sounds familiar. So either it's traveled across the country and I've heard of broken shaker or there is a broken shaker here. I feel like people really like it.
1: Yeah. There's one in New York. It's associated with a freehand hotel, the freehand hotel, so I know the owner a bit of one here. I know he has one in New York as well. It's like a group of owners. They're super cool people. And I think there's one in LA as well. So yeah, I recommend it. Their cocktails and food is top notch. Awesome.
0: Well, great. That sounds like a weekend plan. Thanks for the heads up. And how are you liking Miami Beach? I know obviously we hear in the media, you know, everyone's flocking to Miami, especially in the tech world. I know you've been there for seven, eight years. So maybe you're like, I started the trend, but how do you like it? Like, how is Miami?
1: Well, it's great, except I do not want to advertise it now because I don't want anyone else coming here because the traffic is now terrible. (laughs) And the rents are, I don't know if you've seen those charts, but I think Miami is now worse than any place in the country. And in terms of rent and home price increases, it's like far exceeded LA, New York, San Francisco which as you know, like the Bay Area was completely unaffordable for years and still is, but Miami is now worse. And so all of us in Miami are like, we're just waiting for the hurricane that scares everyone away. Obviously, we don't want a hurricane to hit, but the joke is like, You know all the northeasterners and west coast people won't be able to handle it, and so yeah, it's pretty crowded down here. But look, it's it's great. I live right on the beach. You can't see it, but it's it's right out there. So it's beautiful. Coming from New York City, I grew up, born and raised in New York City, which is still, of course, I think the greatest city in the world. I love LA as well. But when I I moved to Miami, and I moved here against my will, I was relocated for work, which is something else we could talk about long ago. But I came kicking and screaming, and I was like, well, if I've got to leave New York and LA then I, I'm going to live on the beach. So I got this apartment right on the beach. And I was really, really, I struggled down here for quite some time, for many years. It's just very different than New York, but I grew to appreciate it. And especially during the pandemic, it's a much easier place to live. So coming from New York City, when I moved here, I was like, oh, life is easy? You know, like everything in New York is so hard. If you want to get groceries, if you want to do your laundry, like everything is just difficult. And I grew up there. So I never realized you know, I lived there till I was 30, you know, and I just never realized how hard it was. And then I moved here and I'm like, if I'm not careful, I'm going to get soft living in Miami. And then the pandemic happened and I was like, oh, I have access to the beach. I keep pointing at it because it's right there. I have access to the beach and the boardwalk for my dog. And, you know, it's small, it's easy to get around, there's many benefits. New York and LA had all these restrictions and lockdowns, which I personally didn't agree with. And we were really quite open, other than a few months in Miami. So people can think what they think about that. That's, you know, besides the point, but from an experience perspective, we were all very happy to, you know, I mean, there, there are certainly regulations, yet to wear a mask in the supermarket and stuff, but, but it was much less suffocating, I think, than when I would go back to New York or LA. And so for me personally, I very much enjoyed that, like being able to, you know, be careful as you wish and take your own precautions, but also not having this sort of oppressive, situation. Our businesses down here did really well. Lots of people moved here. And then, you know, we sort of got this influx of West Coast and Northeast people. And so from my perspective, that was really good. So I really like it here now.
0: Oh, I love that. Thanks for the overview of Miami. You are selling me. And unfortunately, I think you've sold some people that are listening. Don't move Um, here. (laughs) I know. Hopefully not too many. Maybe we can talk about hurricane stats next. But no, I, that sounds amazing. And I, I totally hear you on the COVID stuff. I mean, I think that really changed a lot of people's perspectives on where they live and it'll be so interesting. I think it's still shaking out, right? Like we don't really know how that's all going to play out, but I totally hear you being able to be on the beach, being able to have space to walk, feeling like you can support local businesses and go places without rules that maybe seem outdated or oppressive or whatever that might be. So refreshing and either further validates you stay there or if it's not that way, makes you want to move somewhere else. So, I totally, totally hear you.
1: Yeah. You know, and look, different strokes for different folks. So some people might not enjoy that, but many people clearly did and do. And that's why they're here. And I'm in the business of longevity and and well-being. And so there's certainly something to be said for being in the outdoors. There's lots of studies on nature, on being near a body of water, on salt air, on Access to greenery, you know, the warm humid weather was much better when you you think about a respiratory virus. And then just the lack of stress. I find Miami a very stress-free place other than the traffic now. So that's all really good for enhancing well-being. So I'm a fan, but no one should move here. No one should
0: move. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. Ignore everything I just said. No, you're so right about the science of it too, you know? I think, like, because this is what you study, you actually know, and even the science of connection, right? Being able to be around people and go to restaurants and being able to just even, like, wave from afar, like, so powerful. And I think so much of what we saw with COVID, I'll speak from personal experience, like, ah, it was not easy, single, like, living alone. Like, that was hard. And I think the cities where people facilitated connection faster than others were very, very attractive to you know younger folks, maybe who were single, maybe who lived on their own, whatever it may be, because connection is such a huge part of health and well-being. And you know that better than anyone, but I think that was that's another piece of it too, that Miami sounded very appealing during the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Look, no matter where you are, how you want to think about human connection, it's so important. It's such an important ingredient. And know span, lifespan whatever you want to call it people talk about for example the blue zones most people are familiar with that right these these areas pockets of the world where dan buettner and his team studied the longest lived populations and said well how do they live what do they eat who are they what are their genes like right like what's allowing these people to live really long and and by and large right diet is this this predominant factor in health and well-being longevity But the thing that I think people forget to talk about is, yeah, you got to move more. You need to eat correctly, mostly plants and clean and non-processed foods and drink a lot of water and get vitamin D sunshine outside. But they all had tightly knit communities, you know, whether it was your, your actual biological family or they had these communal families. I think that loneliness is an epidemic. So that's a whole other podcast, but certainly the past couple of years did not help that. And if anything Maybe they helped to like amplify it so that people could pay more attention and appreciate that. So now we're seeing the ramifications of keeping children, for example, desocialized and away in their home, even though the intention was, of course, to protect them. We didn't, people didn't know any better at the very beginning, but look at all of these outcomes, right? You had lots of lonely people and we know from looking at elderly senior populations, what happens when elderly people are lonely. And there's a great article, which I think it's called Loneliness as a Molecule. And it was, I'm not even remembering, I don't know if it was peer-reviewed paper, it was just a journalist had written this article, but I, it always stuck with me, this idea that loneliness was a molecule because it does induce chemical changes, right, in the body. And so you can study that. What happens when people are alone and by themselves and without human connection? And I was just telling somebody over the weekend, texting is not the same. And there's another study, which I do not remember the name of or where it comes from, but there is a study where they looked at, and I will paraphrase this, what happens when someone texts you, I love you. How are you? Versus when someone is sitting in front of you within physical proximity, it says, I love you. How are you? And I think the gist of it was that when someone texted, I love you. How are you on the phone? And they must have had people hooked up to, you know, some sort of monitor, I don't know, heart rate, whatever. There was no change. Like these physiological changes didn't happen. There wasn't a change in oxytocin or dopamine or any of these markers. And when people were in physical proximity, someone said, I love you. Even if it wasn't romantic, there were these physiological changes, which It makes sense, right? And then there's the impact of the microbiome and all of that sort of stuff. So I think that stuff is super interesting and understudied.
0: Yeah. And that's why you're tackling it now, which is really cool. And and we'll get into as well. I completely hear you. And I agree. I think these blue zones are such a fascinating, fascinating study into the basics of human needs. And like they're located in really cool spots too. Just a shout out if anyone wants to go visit. Like there's one in Greece I know. It's really funny. I a lot of this stuff is the basics which is kind of crazy but when you talk about it like eat more move more connect more be grateful it's all the basic human needs it's all the things that any of us can do no matter of socioeconomic status race place whatever like and so i think hearing you talk about it i hope that you know we can continue to realize how like accessible some of these basics are and like live longer lives it's not like there's a magic pill that you have access to that you're studying as far as I know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. It's the basic stuff. It's the eating better. It's the moving better. It's the connecting more. And that gives me hope too, that like when we think about longevity and wellness for the whole world, it's not so far out of reach. We just have to educate
1: people that it is the basics. Did you read one of my other interviews because you just paraphrased the whole spiel, which is great. Yeah, that's really, yeah, yeah, you could be a spokesperson for us. I mean, that's what I always say, right, is everyone's looking for a magic bullet with longevity. And I'm like, I always joke, guys, you're not going to want to hear my answer because there is no magic bullet. I mean, sure, people are looking for small molecule drugs and whatnot, but I'm not sold on that. I mean, that's a very reductionist approach. So, So drugs have their place and can be very helpful for certain interventions if someone is sick or, you know, whatever. But when it comes to longevity, we need to think about it holistically. And that's why what I'm doing, I know this is not specifically about my company now, but what I'm doing at Foxo, which is a longevity company, is saying, okay, how can we provide people with some simple success strategies or guidelines on how to live longer? And none of these things, even though they all come from peer-reviewed literature and we cite all of them, none of them are groundbreaking. I mean, sure you might need advice on like how to implement something like intermittent fasting or how to implement a plant-based diet or how to implement an exercise regimen but everybody knows the basics right you have to eat a certain way and you have to be connected and move and de-stress and breathe and drink water and you know have a good fitness routine like these are all they're basic and you need all of them you can't just do pick one intervention and then say you know, I'm going to live to this age, even though there's some genetic influence. But I don't even say, oh, you have to do the hard work because I don't think it's hard. I think that once you're able to implement these things, like they should be enjoyable. So if someone doesn't want to give up a certain food, it's because they're addicted to the junk and the processed stuff that is literally engineered to make you want to eat more of it. So I don't fault people for having trouble with it. At first, we all did. But once you start living this way, it's a lifestyle that has sort of this, you know, it's, it's a feedback loop. So you're going to feel better. And then presumably you're going to continue with that choice or intervention.
0: Okay. So I agree with everything you're saying. I have to bring up something from my past so you understand why I am passionate about this and know about this. Have you heard of the company Made For? It's like a wellness startup. I've heard of the name. Um, it was started by Blake Mycoskie, who started Tom's Shoes. Oh, right. Yes. And Pat Dossett. And he was like a Navy SEAL for 10 years. And then Andrew Huberman, if you're familiar with him, he is like the lead advisor for Made4. And I say all this because I don't know how much you looked into my background, but I was like the founding team member of Made4. I was like the second employee and built that for a long time. So, so much of like what I'm passionate about and what I've hopefully contributed my very small part to the world is bringing Made4 into existence with our team. And like, that's exactly what we do. And, you know, I don't, unfortunately, I don't work there anymore. Beautiful team product, all the things, but that's like what it is. It's like just helping people live better and realize these very, very small fundamentals. Because like you said, it's a feedback loop. Like you have to drink water every day for seven days. And on day two, day three, you're like, oh, that actually does make me feel a lot better. And like day eight, you're like, oh, maybe I want to like eat better too then you're like, oh, maybe I want to move better too. And you just, it starts to compound on each other, like you said. So anyway, I just had to share. I felt like I was like concealing information because I was like, I actually, I studied this and I, I spent, made this my life for a while, but it's such important information.
1: That's why you were so clued into what I was going to say. That's why I was (laughs) like, we're on the same page. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. I would caveat it by saying that sometimes when you start, one of these lifestyle interventions, particularly I think with, you know, nutrition or exercise, sometimes you don't feel great on the second day. You know, if your body is used to not eating fiber, for example, and Dr. Will B talks a lot about this, right? He wrote fiber fueled, and he's one of my heroes. I just think like I just think his take on that is just is just brilliant and spot on. And so obvious, right? But he's great at communicating it. And he makes this really great analogy, which I actually implemented myself because I had difficulty um, consuming, you know, highly fibrous foods for, for many years, even though I was plant based. So I was super limited and restricted, and my microbial diversity wasn't great because of that. And I was like, well, you know, I've got this, this GI problems. So what am I supposed to do? And and I encounter many people who say that, and he says that as well. And so I think it was on uh, Rich Roll's podcast, but like a year or two ago, he said, you know, imagine that you I go to the gym and lift weights every day, right, for years. It was, imagine you never had lifted weights, and you go to the gym and you're training with a bodybuilder. He's like, all right, bro, Like, you know, take these 50-pound weights and do some curls. He's like, the next day, you would feel like absolute junk. You would be like, oh, my God, I can't lift my arms. This is terrible. You'd probably hurt yourself or pull a muscle or something. And so he's like, it's the same thing with when you're making any of these dietary changes, particularly with fiber, right, which is going to change that microbial composition of the gut, which is great for longevity and health. But if you're not used to eating it, you can't go eat like two cans of beans. You have to, I think he had said something like add a tablespoon of the offending food. I say that in quotes, if someone's listening and not watching of the offending food every day or every other day, slowly, 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 and allow your gut to adapt. And I would say that like, that's just so simple, but the most obvious and brilliant recommendation for anyone who's looking to make a healthy lifestyle change, because Sometimes doing something cold turkey just doesn't work. Like your body is not adapted. And then what happens is people won't stick with it. They'll go, oh, I can't handle pinto beans, even though pinto beans are great for you. Or, oh, weight training is no good for me because I couldn't walk for three weeks. Well, yeah, because you never did it before, man. So start out slow and let your body adapt. Then you'll start to see the benefits. And that's the other thing is I, I always say, like, look, almost nothing's overnight. Everyone wants a quick fix. Everyone's impatient. We are living in this like, horrible, you know, materialistic, immediate gratification, social media, everything changing all the time. You want something new and stimulating and different. That's not how life works. So slow down and wait and have patience. Hard for me, I will admit, but have patience and see where it takes you.
0: Yeah. I hear you on the patience thing. That is my, it is my strength and my weakness. I am an impatient person can be good, can also be very bad. But yeah, I think this small steps comment is just spot on. And like being patient with yourself and knowing that you have to just, it's almost like microdosing these changes, building over time, so that you're not setting yourself up to fail, which I think a lot of people can do with health and because they want it to happen tomorrow. So yeah, I think that's super powerful. And I hope people listen coming from you as the longevity expert bioethics studying Harvard degree All the things, and people need to hear it from people who've studied this stuff, not from people who just speak from, you know, I did this and it worked because of this. It's like, let's look at the science. Let's actually look at the people that have studied this. What is across the board working for people? And it's very powerful coming from someone like you. So I hope people really listen and and maybe start something new today, you know, small steps.
1: I appreciate that, Erica. And I really like your microdosing analogy. I'm a big fan of microdosing in general. So I think, I think that has a uh, massive, massive potential. That's a whole other podcast conversation we could have. But um, I like that you made that analogy with the interventions because I do think that that's correct.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. So we could talk about this forever. Clearly, we are both a little passionate about wellness and longevity. <laughs> but I do want to get into a little bit just your background because it is just so interesting. And then we'll dive into obviously what you're doing now. So if people caught it in your bio, you studied studio art at Wesleyan which is a little different than what we've been chatting about for the past few minutes. Can you walk me through why studio art, how you liked Wesleyan, and just, yeah, that college experience as a whole? I'd love to hear more.
1: Sure. I mean, I was an artist since I was a baby, essentially. I um, This is funny, but I hold... My pen really weirdly. And I know if someone's listening on podcast, they won't be able to see, it, but this is how I hold, this is how I write. So I just, this is what I did naturally, like I don't know, kindergarten or before, or whatever. And so the teachers, this was in the 80s, right? When it wasn't woke, they weren't woke yet. So they were like, we're gonna try and make her conform and change her finger position. So they they gave me this weird pencil holder and they made me, you know, try to hold like a they would say normal way that you would hold your pen. And I only say that to say. That they realized very quickly that I had this aptitude for art, and I think one of the teachers said, All right, you know, what? we'll just leave them alone because this kid has got this talent, and if we make her change the way she holds this pen so strangely, she's not going to be able to exercise this talent. And so they stopped bothering me, they left me alone. And so it was just, I mentioned it only not in a self aggrandizing way, but just to say that this was something that I did from the time I was very, very little, and that thankfully I was in a school system and had a family that recognized it and nurtured that in me, which was, you know, always art and writing. And so I went to a specialized art high school, LaGuardia High School for the Arts in
0: Manhattan. Of course. Wait, just quick side note, like Timothy Chalamet, Ansel Elgort, like all the greats. Nicki Minaj. Ooh, a great one too. Okay. that's That's like the most famous arts high school. Isn't that
1: fame was based off of LaGuardia? Am I right? That is correct. It was fame. It was called the High School of Music and Art when it was fame in the 70s or something like that, or 80s. And then it became LaGuardia High School of Music and Art. We're right behind Lincoln Center in New York. So it's a specialized school. You have to audition to get in. So my thing was, uh, I mean, I did all the arts, but I auditioned for fine art. And so that's what I did for four years. And anyone who knows anything about that school knows it is a rigorous school, right? Like it's a theater school, the Juilliard and Berkeley College of Music and like all the top Cooper Union, like all the top art Performance colleges and stuff like that. So it was very, very rigorous, and I only say that because it leads into your question about my undergraduate degree, which is obviously why I got my degree in studio art. But I think Wesleyan has many benefits. But also, I was—it's smaller, and I was a kid coming from a high school where we had nine hundred and something kids per grade, and I was living, you know, in New York City, and it was very big and busy. And LaGuardia High School was, and I love that place so much to this day. It's like the best school experience I could have asked for. You know, many people have trouble in high school. I thank God that we didn't have any of that. Like no one was really bullied. Uh, I shouldn't say no one, but I didn't experience that, nor did my friends, because we were all the weird kids. Like we were the kids that would have gotten bullied at the regular high schools. We were all the freaks, right? Like I had purple hair and a tongue piercing, and you know, you had kids dressing up however they wanted and this was in the 90s, so I'm dating myself, but LGBTQ wasn't even an acronym people would use. It was still the AIDS crisis. We had lots of, lots of kids identifying as gay. One of my friends had come in as Miguel and left as Michelle. And that was not a thing, I mean, no one was familiar with any you know trans anything like that just wasn't a conversation in the late 90s this was like back when like the first real world was on and there was the young man I forget his name Pablo somebody Pedro who had who had AIDS and later died and so like that was something we all followed so I just say this to say that I grew up in this very counterculture accepting sort of like hey we're all united together because we're you know we're all different and the quality and caliber of students there I mean men The acceptance rate is very low, and those kids were so talented. Like, you would go watch them perform Macbeth or hear the orchestra, and you're like, I feel like I'm at the New York Philharmonic. I mean, they were so, so talented, and we worked really hard. And so then I got to college, and I was like slightly disappointed because I'm like, huh, no one here is working, you know, 10 hours a day in studio. Like, what's going on here? So Wesleyan's a great place, super unique, very, very smart and talented people. But it was very small and I didn't feel it was rigorous enough for me. So I wish I had gone to a much more rigorous school, maybe bigger.
0: It's super interesting. Yeah, and it's so cool hearing people's like firsthand experience from LaGuardia. I think it's obviously like we hear it about a lot in the media and we know lots of famous people we can rattle off that went there. But it's really cool to hear about your experience there and that it was such a special place for counterculture and like rigor. I think there's nothing better. Like I miss college because everyone was so passionate and so excited about their thing and what they were building. I mean, I did obviously the more the business route, but it's this idea that you just like devote your life to something and you're surrounded by like-minded people. And when you find that, it's really hard to let it go. And it sounds like you found that in high school. That was like your thing. Like you just, you found a group of people that really cared and were so rigorous and passionate about their craft. Did you ever consider doing another major when you were there? Did you think I'm going to pursue this for a career? I mean, obviously you were very talented at it, but what was like the career aspect of it? Did you think that this was going to be something you would like make money off of? Like walk me through that piece a little
1: bit. Yeah, no, I didn't think it was something I was going to make money off of. And, you know, again, social media was really only just beginning when I was in college. So, I think that, you know, had I fast forwarded 10 years, I probably would have pursued art in a more professional fashion because I would have seen that there was opportunity, that now you had a platform. But when I was growing up in New York and when I was in high school or even early in college, you know, you had to like find a gallery to represent you. you the idea was that you were going to be this poor, starving, struggling artist. And I, at that time, just really didn't want to be that. And so, at one point, I had even ventured into architecture when I was in undergrad. So, I spent, it was supposed to be a year. Uh, it's a crazy story. It's supposed to be a year and it ended up being half a year I'm at Columbia University Graduate School of Architecture as an undergrad. So you applied to this program and you were to go be at Columbia for a year. But the first day of class, of our architecture class, was the morning of September 11th, 2001. And we were to meet with the builders and planners of the World Trade Center at the World Trade Center at 8 a.m. So that's where we were. And by some stroke of God, fate, whatever you want to call it, it's a crazy story. Late the night before, our architecture program, TA, had emailed us. And at the time, I'm really dating myself, but like there were no iPhones, right? Maybe I had a Blackberry. We had to log into our desktop computers and check email. And my roommate at the time, her name was also Erin from LA, she logged in and was like, oh, they moved the meeting time at the World Trade Center up from 8 a.m to 9 a.m. It was in the Winter Garden in the center of the towers. And so she said, well, we should still get there early so we could go up to Windows on the World and have breakfast. And I was like this obnoxious New York City kid. I'm like, I'm not paying, you know, seven fucking dollars to go in this elevator so I could eat some overpriced breakfast. I'm like, you're not going to like it up there. New York looks like a postage stamp. I've done it. It's terrible. And so, you know, part of it was me, me being, you know, a cranky about not wanting to go have breakfast there that we didn't end up in those elevators. But some students were inside the building. We were, we were on the ground that morning. So I just say that to say that that was life-changing experience, which I can talk about now, but really, really, I think messed a lot of us up for a while. And that was my attempt at making my art career or something professional by going into architecture. I said, how can I professionalize this? And, and I ended up leaving that program halfway through just because I had a really hard time, I think, having dealt with 9-11 and, and whatnot. So I think that's part of the story perhaps. And, and so I just continued with my studio art major and did not pursue architecture after that. But I, d- I did pretty intensely for about a year.
0: Whoa, that is a crazy story. I'm shocked the odds of that. It's very rare to come across people that were that close. Did you, and if you don't mind me asking, like a lot of, I don't know the timing of everything, but did some students not, not make it out that day because they were either at breakfast or they had followed through on the meeting or what was like the timing of that? So, I mean, I imagine there must've been some tragedy as part of that or no.
1: Well, there was a lot of tragedy on 9-11, obviously on that day, but thank Oh, I mean, it- it's from your class. Yeah. No, no. Thankfully, everyone, everyone survived relatively unscathed. There were students who were inside the building at that time because they went early, but they all made it out. So no one, thankfully, no one passed and no one was severely injured or anything. I remember one of my friends was, I think he even took a picture or something, but he literally like, was like in his cloud of dust, like huddled on the sidewalk and has this crazy photo, you know? So it shook a lot of people up, some people more than others. I think some kids left the program after that week and some people were fine and then some people had a hard time.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I know that's that must have been very very tough. And still 20 years later, you know, there's still like it really can take you back seeing a photo, hearing that story. So, thank you for sharing. And I can understand why maybe maybe we just move on to another program or another situation. There's a lot of pain and a lot of horror when you think about that day. So, thank you for sharing. So, studio art, you're thinking architecture, you sign up for this Columbia program, you leave halfway through. And you graduate with a studio art degree. You then decide business is going to be my post-grad decision. And not just nine to five, finding just a local business job. You decide to go the very intense route of multiple business jobs year after year. Let me get this right. Analyst at Bear Stearns. Okay. Anyone who knows anything about finance. Okay. Then management associate at Bridgewater. Legendary Ray Dalio. Then at 25-ish, you're a vice president at Cantor Fitzgerald. So anyone who looks at that goes, that resume, just those first years out of school, looks like someone that's been plotting to be a very high-level, intense financial person since they were two. Like, what? I need you to explain this. I'm very, I was like, she goes from studio art, LaGuardian studio art, which is like very deep in that world. And then somehow also gets these jobs, which is, how do you get these jobs too? So uh, you have some explaining to do. I'm what, what
1: finance? <laughs> yeah. It's always funny when someone, someone repeats it and then I'm like, yeah, I know. I can see how that could sound weird, but there is a threat. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, I, I guess I, was, I sort of meandered, but I was starting to say, you know, I had this intention of wanting to sort of professionalize. My career, because at the time being a studio artist, which I really should have kept up with that. And now, and now I'm still, you know, I'm making art again, but I didn't because I was young and I was scared and I had this phobia of being poor and having no money. And that's, that was just my hangup. And I didn't really see a way other than at the time, the traditional route, which was you had to get representation, get into a gallery, then you'd hope someone might pay for your art. Like what the heck was I doing? And I really was not into like the super abstract installation art that was happening at the time. I still, I'm not like, I'll go to Art Basel and see some of the stuff and get really angry. Cause I'm like, you are not an atelier trained, <laughs> you know, studio artist. So I definitely have my own biases there. I don't like that stuff. And I just didn't want to compromise anything. I'm like, look, I like doing nude figure drawing and I did stone sculpture right like which is super old school and all this stuff that was very like atelier style or traditional and I just didn't see a place for that as a career at the time so I was like I don't really know what I'm going to do and to answer your question of how I got these jobs by the way I didn't even take a single economics class in college not a single one so the fact that I ended up in this world was insane but it's a cool story And yeah, I mean, essentially I I graduated. I didn't know what I was going to do. I ended up being recruited while I was swimming at the Y by this former Soviet Olympian. She was a swim coach for the, it was like a JCC, this YWHA or something. And she said, you're going to swim on my team. And I said, I'm 22. So I probably can't swim on your age group, high school swim team. And she said, okay, you can come be a coach with me. So it was a junior Olympic certified team. And so I coached with her for like six months. It was just a job, you know, a job I did It was like in the the evenings when kids would show up for coaching and then we'd travel with them to uh, meet, swim meets and stuff. So from there I decided, well, I'm not making enough money doing this and this is cool, but like, that's not really my thing. And I just graduated and I need to have income so I can pay my loans. And so I went and became a personal trainer, uh, an athletic club down on Wall Street was across the street from Goldman Sachs. And that was completely random. That's where I ended up got my trainer certification and I was his personal trainer and I had a client at the time who I won't say his name just because of client privilege. I'd have no idea if he'd want me to say it. Maybe he wouldn't, maybe he wouldn't, but he's actually on CNN now totally as an aside. He's a, he's a, a defense attorney. And so he does a lot of commentary, but at the time he was this big defense attorney. And I said, you know, I don't really want to, he's like, what are you doing? Like, what? you can't be, you, you, like, personal training is not for you. What are you doing? And there's nothing wrong. Like there are great personal trainers, but he could tell like my heart wasn't super into it. Like loved health and fitness. I love anatomy and the human body because I was always drawing it. Right. So I knew physiology very, very well, which sort of intersects with the science thing. So I said, you know, I think I'm going to go to law school. So I'm going to become a paralegal first. And you know, a, I thought it's a nice Jewish job that I can, I can make my grandma happy or something. And he's like, I remember he was doing sit-ups and he goes, what? Don't be a lawyer. Don't be a lawyer. This comes from a very successful lawyer. He said, no, 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 you're going to be miserable. Don't be a lawyer. You see what those guys over there, and these were traders that would come after the market closed from Goldman and they would come train. because see those guys. He said, yeah, they always have like golf clubs with them. Do they work? And he goes, no, yeah they're traders. You should go be an equities trader or bond trader at one of one of these, these shops. You'll kill it. He's like, it's not that hard and you'll make really good money. And I think you'll like it because it's dynamic and you're a very outgoing person. So I'm like, okay, I didn't even know what this was. I was like, I'd heard about it, but I never had a banking internship. So I decided to research it and I was like, oh, this sounds cool. I'd like to be a trader. So I started studying and then I went to a uh, It was a women and minority career fair in the city. And there was a representative from Bear Stearns, this woman. And I interviewed, I actually had an interview at Goldman, but they, it was for like a, an admin position. And Goldman was like, look, we think you're awesome, but we're not going to hire you as an admin because you're going to get bored in five minutes. But we also can't hire you as an analyst because you literally have no qualifications, even though we know you're smart. So they turned me away. So there were these these shops that had pedigree, right? Like Morgan Stanley and Goldman, like you needed to have sort of the internship. You just needed that pedigree. Bear Stearns didn't care. They were like, if you can hustle your way into business, you can work for us, which was, I so appreciate to this day because they gave me a chance and they hired me as a trading assistant on the equities trading floor, some floor of 383 Madison. And I just went from there and I- Still remember. Yeah, I was like, I'm gonna take my series seven The whole trading floor bet against me, unbeknownst to me until years later. They all were like, she's never going to pass the Series 7. And then this one guy who worked on my desk, he told me later, like, I was one of the only ones who said you were going to pass, and I got the whole pool of money. And so, yeah, so I ended up doing that. And then, as everyone knows, Bear Stearns fell. So I was on the trading floor for that, (laughs) watching all the lines being pulled, you know, which was crazy. Jamie Diamond would like come over to the floor sometimes. It was because uh, obviously Jake Morgan was across the street and they were looking at, you know, sniffing out, what can we do with bear? Cause it had gone under. So that was a crazy experience. And then, uh, yeah, then Bridgewater came calling one of the girls who was like one of Ray's right-hand people, or she was like the COO's right-hand chief of staff. She called me. So did that for a while, left Bridgewater, and then went to Cantor Fitzgerald, which was kind of ironic because Cantor lost almost all of their workforce on the morning of 9-11. So that was interesting, kind of circular thing coming full circle, you know, 10 years later.
0: I love hearing the story. I also love the Women in Minorities Career Fair and this woman at Bear Stearns being like, yeah, you'll figure it out, you know, and just like believing in you when you didn't have that economics class or series seven yet or pedigree or anything. And that you just made it work and you hustled and you passed the tests and you did it. And you were there for the 2008, obviously crash. Pretty wild that you just made it happen. I mean, it's pretty evident throughout your career too. When you decide you want to do something, you like immediately do the top thing. Like even something as simple as like now, obviously you're doing a lot of this work in like bioethics and longevity. You're like, Sure, I'll just like go to Harvard and like get degrees, you know? And it's just very, very impressive. And I'm sure you, you know, you don't take it probably because you're someone who keeps going and does a million things. You don't take enough time to stop and really like internalize that. But it's very impressive that you just set your mind to something and then like within months, you're just there doing it at the most, you know, top place with really interesting people. So very, very cool. And then obviously you do this, you know, finance stint for a bit. And then you have a bit of a stint in, like hosting. And maybe we can just chat about that quickly before we get into Fox so briefly, but I'd love to hear just, I know you did some work at NBC Sports and CBS and Showtime after your finance gig. Why make this switch? And how did you like that? You know, I know you did that for maybe a few years,
1: three or four years. Yeah, I loved it. And people always say like, oh, that's such a disconnect. How did that happen? And I will try and keep it as brief as possible. But essentially, everyone knows what was happening in the financial world during the time of the crisis, right? So I witnessed Bear Stearns collapse, made it to Bridgewater. Thankfully, market still wasn't great, right? We were doing well, wasn't great. And so basically every job that I'd I'd had after that, because of the economy and because I was still young, right, you were going to be the first person to get cut or, you know, uh, the division was going to close or whatever. So I kept going kind of from job to job. Um, and I really wasn't happy, and that's not to say that I wouldn't go back to finance again in, in the appropriate capacity. I mean, I think, for example, what some VCs are doing and are able to do to make change in the world is really, really impressive and important. So that's something I'm, you know, I'm interested in that aspect. But I just wasn't happy at the time. I wasn't happy with myself. I was confused. I was, you know, it was a difficult time to be a young professional because it, things were so unstable, as you as you may remember. And so I lost my one of my jobs and. I was like, this is the universe, like putting my back against the wall saying like, yo, you better make a change, like, go do what you want to do. Now is the time because I'm not giving you anything else. And because, you know, you're really miserable. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to start auditioning for, you know, TV and film stuff because I talk about the, the art stuff that I did, but I did everything, right? I did music. I was, I was just in the arts in general. I loved performing. And so, yeah, so I started auditioning about this, this role in this independent film and then I went to a party one night, and this was in 20, 2009, probably ten. I was still working at Cantor Fitzgerald, actually. I went to this party and this girl said, Oh, you should go audition Fila, this the brand Fila is making a comeback and they're having there's a casting call for this modeling campaign. You should go. I almost didn't go. It was pouring rain, but I didn't have a job. Oh no, I did. Sorry maybe I didn't. No, I'm confusing. my. Okay. I was between jobs. I didn't work at Cantor yet. I got the job at Cantor after that. I was between jobs at the time. And so, yeah. So I woke up on like a Wednesday, went down to Union Square in the rain, auditioned for this thing. I win, and I remember where I was standing when they called me back. And I was like, what? So I was in this national athletic apparel modeling campaign. And because I was still in finance, even though I was in between jobs at the time, I knew that every trading floor has 20,000 TVs and they all have CNBC on. You're watching CNBC all day or Bloomberg. And I was like, oh, if I can get on CNBC, then like, you know, then I'll have a television career. I don't know what I was thinking. This is what I had in my mind. And so I approached the VP of marketing at Fila in North America. And I said, hey, you have a really interesting fiscal story here because you're coming back from the brink of bankruptcy with this like toning wear. This was before Kim Kardashian even started promoting this stuff. This was very early in 2009. And I'm like, I think you have a financial story here. So I think we should go on CNBC and I should model this clothing that you have me in this campaign for. And we should talk about this campaign and you should talk about how you've come back from the brink of bankruptcy as this international company. And they were like, great idea. So they booked it and they take me on CNBC. And so I I was on one of the segments and it was like a a sports business reporter, Darren Revell at the time, had us on his segment. I forget which show it was. I'm in the green room. They're doing my makeup. We start chatting and he's like, who are you? You work in finance, but you really like sports and health. And also you're modeling this, like what is going on? And so we have this great conversation. He goes, do you have Twitter? And I was like, no, I think Twitter's dumb. This is 2009. And he goes, make a Twitter account right now. And I'm going to tweet a photo of you, which he did. ESPN contacted me. I got all these followers. They were like, we want to invite you to join us at Midnight Madness. Kickoff, this is all completely random and nuts, right? So I ended up going to St. John's University in Queens, which was the year Steve Lavin came on to coach. And that was actually the first year I think they went to the Sweet 16 in many, many years. And I met uh, I met their SID, their sports information director. And long story short, they were like, this was at the ESPN Midnight Madness thing. And they were like, oh, would you like to try sideline reporting? And I was like, okay. So I literally started doing that. And I was still working at Cantor Fitzgerald at the time. And uh, this, came, this modeling campaign was out. I was doing the sideline stuff at night. I traveled with the St. John's basketball team. And then, yeah, I ended up getting an agent. I signed with CAA and then joined Darren on his, his sports business show. They, they brought me on to be his co-host, CNBC, NBC Sports Network. And so it sort of just went from there. So, yeah, it's, I mean, so yes, there's a bit of luck, but it's also like, once again, you have to create your own opportunities. Like you have to ask and you have to hustle and you have to push. And that's how all that stuff happens. So if there's a common theme, it's that, right? It's not like stuff was just handed to you, even though there were lucky intersections and breaks.
0: Yeah. And you've defined the ways that it all intersects and then also talk to people and explain your story. Because it sounds like you really advocated for the CNBC segment. You really advocated yourself when you were talking to Darren. And I think that's also something that's really evident in your story. So you were basically doing the finance thing by day, this modeling, hosting, performing thing by night that starts to take off. And then you start to do that more full time after Cantor Fitzgerald. And then now you're at Foxo. Very cool. You obviously had this pivot post hosting into this longevity, you know, stint. I know you're working at Inside Tracker. You've gotten, you know, one and a half Harvard degrees in bio and biotech or bioethics i believe very interesting talk to me through like why now longevity i know we talked about that earlier but but like why foxo and why longevity after those couple stints in the beginning
1: yeah well when i was at inside tracker you know that that's as you're probably familiar with them a personalized health and wellness company that's heavily longevity focused so i was already you know sort of working in that world and then when i went i decided i needed to go back to school to get a masters degree which is this harvard biology degree while I was still working. So I did that part time because I knew that like, I, I finally like found my niche and I, I really, I really loved it. I mean, I loved hosting as well. And I'd love to go back to, to doing TV in some capacity, ideally around, you know, what we're doing at Foxo. And so as I was completing my master's thesis, which was in epigenetics and longevity, Foxo came calling and I was like, they, I mean, they found me. And I was like, wait a second, you have a company focused on exactly what I'm writing this thesis about or what I just wrote this thesis about. And so that was just lucky, but also, but also epigenetics and longevity is is taking off in the biotech sector. It's something people are talking about. It's a trend that's interesting and important. So it's not like I was doing something that was meaningless, right? Like I was looking ahead towards what I knew was going to be a trend in the biotech arena and already kind of was. And then met Fox, the guys, uh, people at Foxo. So, and when I heard what their value proposition was, I was like, wait, this is brilliant. This is what I've long thought. It's like, hey, the insurance industry, life insurance is really ripe for disruption. I love disrupting things in case you couldn't tell. So I was like, oh, we get to be like creative, make things better for the world and for other people and get to use all of these skills. I mean, because if you think about product creation, which is what I'm doing, it's a creative process. So it involves art, creativity, science, technology, business, like you have to use all of these different skill sets and you have to understand how to communicate with people and what makes people tick, what does a consumer want, which is something that you have, as you know, a skill as a host, right? Because you've got to talk to a lot of different folks. So it really was a nice sort of confluence of all of the different skills that brought me to this point and allowed me to do something that I'm super passionate about, right? Which is, making the world a better place for people, I hope, for all life, essentially.
0: Oh, I love it. It's so cool. And it makes sense that you're kind of going this more entrepreneurial route now, like you are building something and you're creating something because it's so challenging. It combines so many different industries. And and like you said, it has insane impact. You know, you're making the world better and life insurance and health. I mean, that's, that's what life's all about, right? Living as long as you can, paying the right amount of money for how long you're going to I mean, these things like really impact people's lives and it's really cool you're working on it. Well, obviously you've shared so many pieces of advice, but if there's one thing that you could tell all 20-somethings, and it could be about longevity, it could be about your personal life, whatever it may be, but the one piece of advice you give all 20-somethings, what's that one
1: piece of advice? Try and work on your self-confidence and being present so that you can know what it is you really want but don't be afraid to try different things. I think it's it's particularly for anyone. Because it's easy to feel like have imposter syndrome or think like, oh, I'm I'm, you know, especially on social media, I'm looking at that thing over there, but I don't know that I deserve it or I couldn't achieve it, but you can. Like, and that's one thing that I will really credit my my parents with and, and my dad and, and my grandfather, my dad's dad always said, like, you can be whatever you want, you know. And it wasn't in kind of a fluffy Way, like, yeah, you have to work for it, but human beings contain unlimited potential. And so many people stifle their potential because they're worried about what other people will think of them. They're worried about what am I supposed to do versus not. So I think that's really important. But also, I know that's very popular now to think that way, but you have to work really hard. Anyone that tells you the second something gets hard, you should pull out and leave, that's the pendulum having swung in the wrong opposite direction, in my opinion. So it's good that people are not willing to put up with mediocrity these days, particularly in the younger generation, like this idea, hey, I don't like my job, so I'm just going to go get another one. Well, first of all, the job market is going to change over time, so that may not be possible. But also, you need to work hard. And you, you know, there's something to be said about committing yourself. It doesn't mean you have to stay in it forever, unless you want to, but don't not try and be okay with getting uncomfortable because there's many times I was uncomfortable, but I ultimately learned a lot from it even if I didn't stay with it. So I think that there's like a happy balance. and you could to circle back to the very beginning of our conversation, you could say that about longevity and health and wellness too. like just because something's uncomfortable doesn't always mean it's bad for you. So don't give up just because you don't feel great right away, you don't see immediate results or you didn't get the pay raise or you know, like try find a mentor find connections find people to help you don't always look outside of yourself social media man it is helpful but it is dangerous like stop comparing do it for you that's what i would say
0: i love that and i think the self confidence help you helps you separate between the things that maybe are just hard that you have to push through but feel right for your path and the things that aren't actually the right fit and are uncomfortable for a bad reason and i think like that's as you're explaining kind of those two pieces of advice, I'm like, yeah, but that comes back to the self-confidence of knowing the difference of knowing when to like push through the discomfort and work hard. Cause you know, that's what you should be doing. And you know who you are versus like, yikes, I got to make a switch. This isn't right. And I'm okay with making a switch. I'm okay with trying something new and self-confidence, man, social media does not make that easy, but I think, yeah, it's, it's, Great advice, and I really appreciate it. And people can look at you as a shining example of trying different things and obviously working very hard. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Can you please let everyone know where they can follow you on social? And then, obviously, Foxo, they can learn more about what you're building now.
1: Yeah, for sure. Check out foxolife.com. We're also very active on. Instagram, LinkedIn, and all of the social media platforms. Me, you can just you can just look up my name. There's only one Aaron Cheroni. If it doesn't have a verified checkmark, then it is a fake Aaron Cheroni, But I'm mostly active on on, on Instagram and, and LinkedIn. So if anyone wishes to connect with me there, they certainly can.
0: And maybe they can find that OG um, photo on Twitter of you in your hosting outfit. Who knows if they go there
1: for social media? Well, oh god, no! Don't tell people to do that. <laughs> You're like, just
0: kidding. It's been deleted. It's been deleted. Thank you so much for coming on. This was so interesting. Huge respect for what you've done throughout your career and all the work you're doing now. Huge fan. And yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Erica. Thanks for
1: your great synthesis, dude. You brought it all together.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20 Something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.